Nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Coming up. Coming up, Sarah Bareilles. You know her from her songs Brave and Love Song. And now she's got a new book, album, and Broadway musical. Sarah Bareilles coming up on the Wall Street Journal Arts and Media Podcast. Updates on arts and entertainment. Interviews with celebrities and marquee guests. This is WSJ Speakeasy. Hey, this is Christopher John Farley, a senior editor with the Wall Street Journal. Today on the podcast, we're joined by Sarah Bareilles. Of course, she is the singer-songwriter behind such songs as Brave and Love Song, and now she's got a new book called Sounds Like Me, My Life So Far in Song. She's got a new album, What's Inside, Songs from Waitress, and she's got a musical she's working on called Waitress, which opens up in 2016. Sarah, thanks for talking to the Wall Street Journal. Hi. Uh, that's a long <laughs> intro. Wow. I did do that all in one breath. <laughs> hey, you know, what, what I really love about the book is it gives the real story behind some of the songs that you wrote and sang that people probably have heard on the radio or online or it's on their phone. And they're stories that they might not have known about those songs, like the song Gravity, which actually captures your first heartbreak, right? It does, yeah. Um, yeah I wrote that song uh, after I had just gone away to college and left my high school boyfriend and uh, we had broken up and, you know, I got my heart broken for the first time and then I would find myself coming home and unable to sort of move on and it was a very traumatic experience. It took me years to get over this guy and... Uh, yeah, so that all of that is kind of chronicled in that in the chapter about gravity and but this the song itself sort of took on another life and and it was the first time that I had written something that felt so personal and so vulnerable and and realized that that's actually um a beautiful way to make connection with people like the fact that I was sharing something that was very painful at first felt a little bit nerve-wracking but um I just realized how many people can relate to that feeling of, of loss or heartbreak, and um, they want to have an anthem for it. So um, that song was actually a really kind of uh, interesting mode of discovery for me. Yeah, you mentioned in the book that this was really your first experience of finding catharsis in song. You know, in the writing of the song, it helped you release some of the pain. But one thing I wonder is, when a singer-songwriter has a song that's so personal, that's so wrapped up in her own difficulties, when you sing the song, do you re-experience some of the pain? Do you, does it take you back to the trauma in a way? I think, you know, I've, I have observed in myself that it seems to be something that evolves over time. Certainly at first there is, it's impossible to, at least for me, it was impossible to extract my emotions from you know, even the performance of the song. So I would get emotional or just feel like I was reliving the pain over and over again. But over time and over, you know, getting to have that experience more and more, um, I think it was actually really, like I said, it, it, it is catharsis. It's, it's getting to process those emotions in a way that sort of gives them a home. So um, watching yourself 
kind of go to a painful place and again and again and again come out of it and be okay at the end was actually a really healing experience. So, um, yeah, I don't cry when I sing Gravity anymore, but I did for a time. It was also fascinating to read in this book about your song, Love Song, you know, one of your biggest hits, a big radio hit. And this tale that most people think they know about the song is that here's this, you know, really, you know, uh, new and fresh and fierce singer-songwriter who is told by a record company to sing a love song, and she responds with this song that's about how she doesn't want to give you a love song. But that doesn't really capture mm-hmm. what the song's really about and how it really was, uh, really came about, right? No, I, I think you know. For me, that that story became kind of the Cliff Notes version of what had happened. I think it became easier to distill the experience into something that was sort of bite-sized, um, rather than you know tell the entire story, which is you know to make it brief it was just more about the fact that uh love song was a response to years of feeling criticism and um suggestions as to how i could be better or the things i was doing wrong and why i wasn't as successful as i should have been or could have been um you know it was years of making myself available to these kinds of feedback and then um, you know, eventually when I signed the record deal, it became this neat little moment for me to kind of bite back. But it was no one ever sat me down. I didn't have that conversation with anybody at the label that said, we need this kind of song from you. Um, it was a, more of a, a theoretical conversation more than anything else. But, but you also talk about the difficulty you had with working with certain kinds of collaborators, collaborators who really, who really weren't there to collaborate, but were there more to sort of express their own opinions and artistic desires and not really listen to you and have a, have a real, a real um, give and take with you. And that was frustrating for you as an artist, right? Because you, you have this one line that's great where you say, I would, you know, you, it's sort of a reference to collaboration that you would rather, bad collaborators, that you would rather eat steak knives and a bag of hair and be involved in a situation like that? <laughs> I think, you know, as an artist, one of the things that you're just struggling, a lot of the the reason anyone might choose this path in the first place is because you're sort of trying to find a way to feel seen in the world. And it's not even so much about getting the validation of an audience, but, um, you know, finding songwriting for me was a way for me to understand, oh, this is how I feel about the world and I have to make these songs not for a record label or not for the radio but because I just have to make these songs to be okay in the world and um, I think that every artist is going to be very different and, and their process will look you know vastly different from each other but for me the, the process of songwriting was such a sacred space it was so personal and so private and so much of my lifeline to just feeling sane um, I, I wasn't able to click into any sort of collaborative space that was going to feel, unless someone was an incredibly intimate um, collaborator. And, and there just wasn't the time. You know, I didn't know these people very well, and they weren't even doing anything wrong. I 
I, I hope I didn't make it seem too sinister, but I, you know, at the same time, I felt so invisible and so unimportant and so unseen in that moment. Um, yeah, it made me angry. I felt like I was, I was being churned through a machine that the machine isn't inherently bad, but for me, it didn't fit. Now, self-image is sort of an ongoing theme of this book, and it's something you sort of deal with head-on in the chapter, Beautiful Girl, where you talk about your time on The Sing-Off. I used to watch The Sing-Off with my, with, my, with my kids and love the show. It's an a cappella singing competition, and Ben Folds is on the show. But uh-huh. behind the scenes, there was some difficulty that you had where you, that you felt like, to a certain extent, you were being put into a box. They were, they were choosing clothes for you. They were having talks about how you should look and present yourself and that kind of rubbed you the wrong way as a an artist who was used to sort of calling her own shots, right? Yeah, you know, it was a really interesting time and I again I, I want to stress that I think that the, the show itself I loved that that show was showcasing um a cappella as a community and as a genre of music. I think that the the, the people on the show, the talent on the show were so incredibly gifted and so dedicated. It was it was a real pleasure to be a part of that. Um, but it was interesting, you know, as a as an adult woman um, who found myself really uh, vulnerable to feeling like I was in control of my own image. I, and it, it was it was um, sort of shocking to me in a way because I felt like I had been through that. That all happened to me in the, in the very beginning when, you know, you're seeking out the sort of quote-unquote packaged image, and I had to have all these fights already. And then I was um, sort of being put through another process, and I totally, on one hand, can respect that the the makers of the show had one idea about how this is all going to go down and what it was going to look like. and. Um, but at the end of the day, I had to reconcile with who I am in the world and what I was being asked to be and what felt inauthentic about that. And and I I really struggled with how to find my voice in that. So um, it was interesting. It, it, it was uh, unexpected. It was an unexpected turn for me at that time. Okay, we're going to be right back with more of our conversation with Sarah Bareilles. They're here. All new podcasts from the Wall Street Journal, including Off Duty. I'm Kevin Sintemong. Hi, Kevin. Hello, Beth. We asked Ryan to take on a bottle of whiskey. I thought it was fantastic. It's a very pretty bottle. Very pretty. <laughs> this is very... basically an excuse to day drink. So Five I'm, I'm going to pop somewhere. this over. Spend lots of time on your device. Then spend some of that time with us. WSJ Podcasts, the sound of success. Now, updates on arts and entertainment. Interviews with celebrities and marquee guests. This is WSJ Speakeasy. We're talking to Sarah Bareilles about her many projects, including her book, Sounds Like Me, My Life So Far in Song, her album, What's Inside, Songs from Waitress, and her musical Waitress, which opens up in 2016. But back to the book, 
Um, in this book, also, you talk about one of your biggest hits, Brave, and how that came about, the kind of social atmosphere at the time, marriage equality. People were talking a lot about that. And one thing I find fascinating is that you couldn't sing the song live at first because the, the notes were just a little bit out of the range you felt comfortable in singing live. Tell me a bit about that. Oh, my gosh, it was terrifying. <laughs> I was horrified. Um, I had written it um, with Jack Antonoff, and um, we did it in the studio together, and I I knew that it was high, but I, you know, you can kind of you can make it work in the studio. You try it enough times, and you're bound to hit the notes a couple times. But when it became about actually sustaining the practice of singing this song, um, I was really struck by how difficult that was. And I um, I was getting ready to go on my first solo tour, and I was in a rehearsal space and just trying to find my way, and it was just terrifying. I couldn't... I was singing incorrectly at the end of the day, and what I ended up doing was asking for help, which was such a an awesome experience to to um be reminded by the song itself about humility and 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 learning that leaning on people is actually a really beautiful part of what it means to be strong and um so I had a voice teacher come in and we worked on the song and she showed me some just song uh note placement the way I was singing how I was making my vowel sounds and some little adjustments and then all of a sudden it kind of clicked and then I realized that I actually was going to be able to pull this thing off, which was a huge relief. <laughs> now, one thing I found interesting is, you know, Katy Perry had her song Roar, which came out afterwards. But in the book, you don't deal with any of the controversy that came out where people, you know, some critics out there thought that Roar sounded an awful lot like Brave, which came out first. But yeah. that's not something you write about. Why didn't you decide to sort of, you know, take on that controversy uh, head on in the book? You know, it's funny. I actually did write about it. And then when I was going through and making edits on these essays, what it felt to me like is that section of the of the essay started to undermine the actual point and the, the life of the song itself. And, um, you know, the controversy is, is whatever it was. it was. It was funny. It felt like it was a... It was this battle that was happening, and, and Katie and I were sort of never really a part of it. Katie's a friend of mine, and we've known each other a long time, and I just didn't have any of that venom inside of me about the whole experience, and nothing that happened with that controversy was anything was but good for my song in the long run. It just made people pay attention to it. Um, so I... Uh, I felt like it was, you know, what happened in the media was more about this terrible habit we have of trying to pit people against each other and making music into this idea of competition. And I just really don't ascribe to that at all. So even in writing about it, and and I sort of said all of those things, but in essay form, I felt like it kind of doesn't matter. And so when I went back through, when I removed that part of the essay, it actually felt like I was paying more honor to to the voice of the song itself, and that felt like it was more in alignment with what I wanted the the essay to be about. Of course, you have this musical coming out next year called Waitress. You have What's Inside, Songs from Waitress, the album that features music from 
waitress. And one thing I find interesting that you mentioned in the book is the fact that um, this wasn't the first musical you've tried to write. You actually collaborated with Jennifer Nettles of Sugarland, and you tried to write a musical mm-hmm. called Lesbians uh, you know, with an oh, exclamation yeah. mark. I want to hear that <laughs> musical. Is that ever going to come to light? Are you ever going to release that in some way? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Never say never, I guess. But um, I mean, I think that we both, uh, we had a lot of fun playing around with this idea and um, and wrote some songs for it. And I think... You know, ultimately, we both went in kind of different directions um, from that project, but it was a really fun experiment, and um, she's massively talented, and so, uh, but I know that she's, you know, she's already starred in in Chicago on Broadway, and I know that she's thinking about doing more and more stuff on stage, as as am I, so who knows? You never know what's going to happen. And, of course, on Waitress, you're collaborating with Tony-winning director Diane Paulus. What does she bring to a show? I mean, she's gotten so much acclaim over the years. Uh, I can know her. I went to school with her. I'm just wondering, what what is it like working with her? Diane is, um, it's been incredible. It's been a huge learning experience for me as well. She's someone who juggles a million things and seems to really have um, an ability to, when she is in the room, really drop into a space of, of deep focus. And um, I will say about Diane that she really, really cares about what she's making. And um, that's, a really beautiful quality to look across the table and see is that at the end of the day, she really wants to do right by these works and she wants to um, tell a great story and she wants to honor the integrity of these characters and give them a life that's going to be meaningful. So, um, you know, she's been, she's been very collaborative and uh, she's been so encouraging um, from day one with me of just making me feel like all of this was possible because I think, you know, starting out for me, I, this feels like a very impossible thing. You know, the idea of writing a musical is is a huge undertaking. And um, so I felt like I was in very capable hands as I stepped into this collaborative space with her. And to a certain extent, this is like full circle for you because as a kid, you write out the fact you loved musicals. You tried out for a musical once that you didn't get the role for, Cinderella and Into the Woods. And now the actress that got that role is now in your musical. Uh, tell me a bit about that and the, the irony of that happening. I'm deeply in love with Jesse Mueller. And um, it, was, it was this incredibly cosmic coming together of all of these little um, moments in time, you know, my audition for Into the Woods, Jesse booking that role. Um, I had just recently met and collaborated with Carol King for the first time, and then I went to see Carol's musical, Beautiful, on the opening night on Broadway, and Jesse, of course, starring in that role, which she won the Tony for. Um, And I... uh, you know, sitting there watching this woman on stage, I couldn't take my eyes off of her. And I just, it all kind of came 
to this wonderful moment of clarity where it just felt like, oh, we found her. Like, may we be so lucky that she says yes. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I saw her on stage and I was like, that's our Jenna, if we can get her. You know, so um, she's been a, an incredible, gracious, grounded, wonderful, generous collaborator. And she is just outstanding. She is so talented. So I'm thrilled that she's a part of our show. Okay, so the book is Sounds Like Me, My Life So Far in Song. The album is What's Inside, Songs from Waitress. And the musical, which you'll have to wait till next year when it opens, is Waitress and it opens in 2016. Spring of 2016. You won't have to wait too long. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah Bareilles, thanks a lot. Thank you for talking with us. Thank you so much. 